The one word that comes to mind when I think of grocery store work is repetition. It's incredibly repetitive. Hi, how are you? You do the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Hi, how are you? How are you? And then you come in the next day and you do it again. And there's a kind of just stultifying boredom that all of us are subjected to on a daily basis that I find really quite violent. Hi, how are you? It's hard on your mind. It makes you crazy. It exhausts you. Really, when I think about trying to get another job, trying to leave the store, the one thing I'm trying to escape is the repetition. From the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Nation, this is Going for Broke. I'm Ray Suarez. Each week, we'll bring you stories of people living hard times, people who are documenting their own stories and in the process, offering up insights for the rest of us. Insights about what's broken in America and how to fix it. We'll finish with conversations about the issues and the solutions that can give us hope. On today's episode, Ann Larson takes us inside her $15 an hour job as a cashier in a grocery store. She wrote an essay about her experiences titled, My Pandemic Year Behind the Checkout Counter. And just a note, we're not going to name the store or its location to protect Ann's job. I am on my way. I'm walking to work. It's a beautiful sunny day. People are out having lunch outside, walking their dogs. And I am uh, heading to the grocery store. I walk to work because I don't have a car. Can't afford it. (laughs) One of the reasons I took the job at the store because it's uh, within walking distance to my apartment. So it's really convenient. It's worked out that way. Whenever I walk to work, I like to just take a moment, take a breath, get ready for the shift to come. I always experience a little bit of dread in thinking about what might happen, different problems that might come up. Customers who are angry or upset, people who might try to steal things that might cause problems just the dread too of just the long night Um, you get to work and you know that you have eight more hours to go and then you begin counting down (laughs) and so on the walk to work you know I sort of just think about what's coming and try to get ready for it I work in a very large store. It's got a huge central concourse with 12 aisles of products, and on either side are different sections. Dozens and dozens of people are working there at any one time. All right, I'm approaching the door to my store, about to go in. There's some construction nearby. People are pulling in and out of the parking lot. 
I can already see some of my colleagues. I've got my mask on. I'm ready to go in and clock in. Anne wasn't always a grocery store worker. She grew up working class in a small farming community in the West. After college, she moved east to forge a career. I really wanted to be in the big city and I wanted to have a professional class job. She waited tables for many years and then enrolled in graduate school, hoping to pursue a career in higher ed, teaching English literature and composition. But then came the financial crisis of 2008. Academic jobs disappeared and started working for nonprofits. She also co-founded an organization called the Debt Collective that fought for student debt relief. But long story short, you know, by the time the pandemic came around, I sort of found myself back in my home region, really having to start over. I took this job during the pandemic because grocery stores were hiring in my area. I was having trouble finding work. I looked a long time for something I could do remotely, something I could do online, but I really wasn't finding much and realizing that it was getting down to the wire and I needed to take what I could get. My strongest memory of my first day is being totally exhausted. I'm middle-aged, but I thought I was in pretty good shape, but no, no, I walked out of that place on the first day. I just wanted to collapse on the sidewalk. I was exhausted. You know, you don't think, oh, grocery store, you cashier, you stand there and you just check groceries all day. What could be hard about that? <laughs> but again, it's the repetitive behaviors, pulling items from one side of the conveyor belt to the other, scanning items. There's a lot of other work, restocking bags, you know, lifting things, bending over, uh, picking up customers' bags and putting them into the cart, physically taxing work. You know, there's kind of a joke in our store that anybody over 40 um, is just, their body's already destroyed if they've been doing this very long. And the thing is, when your body can't function anymore, you can't work there. It wasn't long before Anne realized something else, too. That in the midst of the pandemic, some customers saw her and her colleagues not as fellow human beings, but as vectors of disease. One day, a man and his wife came through, and he was buying a lot of stuff. I was checking him through. There was a bagger who was bagging on my lane. She's an elderly woman, about 80 years old. We're just doing our job like we do hundreds of times a day. I'm checking the groceries and the baggers bagging them. And the man was getting increasingly agitated, especially towards the bagger and her attempt to put his items into bags and then into his cart. And at one point, he stopped and yelled at her and said, stop touching my groceries. Bagger, this is the 500th time that day that she's done this, and she sort of stopped and looked and was kind of confused, but then just continued to bag. And then he said it again, you know, stop touching my groceries. And she finally got the message and walked away in frustration. And the man turned to me and said, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> I just thought, I'm sitting here behind plexiglass you know, to protect me and you, to protect both of us from this virus. I've got gloves on, I'm wearing a mask, so are you. You know, the entire city is shut down in many ways. Of course, you think you have to remind me that we're in a pandemic. I work in a grocery store, you just shop in it. You can hear the frustration in Anne's voice. 
She was struck early in the pandemic by all the articles advising shoppers on how to stay safe. The instructions were all about having your food delivered or picking it up at curbside, doing everything you could to stay out of stores. Don't bother looking for articles full of advice for people who make deliveries or stock shelves or work a register. They aren't there. Anne would read the advice and know that none of it was written for her and her colleagues, people with no choice but to work inside those stores. But as you can imagine, they have their own coping strategies. There's quite a bit of joking and trying to make light of situations that are serious. Even during this pandemic, even during you know, a time when our lives are, are at risk because we're going to work, we, we joke about infecting each other, we get too close, watch out, you're going to give me the COVID, and we laugh. As Anne adjusted to the repetition and the exhaustion and the threat of COVID, she also got used to dealing with the range of customers in the store. One of my colleagues, when I first started, joked that our customer base is either homeless people or rich businessmen. (laughs) Joke or not, there are lots of unhoused people living in encampments near the store. Anne and her co-workers know many of them by name. They come in to use the bathroom. Technically, we're only supposed to give the code to the bathroom out to paying customers. So those folks who are either unhoused or who just don't have money, um, don't have access to the code. Instead, they're forced to wait outside the bathroom so they can catch the door and enter when someone else exits. One day, Anne arrived at work to find out that one of the unhoused people hadn't been able to get into the bathroom on time, had dropped his pants, and defecated on the floor of the store. The incident was shocking and exposed a tense divide in the store. Anne and some of her colleagues were sympathetic to the unhoused guy, desperate for a bathroom. We argued that, listen, people have to shit somewhere. But others were furious that a colleague had to clean up the mess. Anne says she understood that sentiment too. These daily dramas linger in her unconscious. I dream about the place every night. I'm dreaming about the music, about the produce codes, about something that happened, about an angry customer, about something a colleague said, about whether I did a good job, about a mistake that I might have made, about what's going to happen the next day, anxiety dreams. It constantly colonizes your mind, and there's really no way around it. During the night shift, we have to lock the place up, lock the doors, make sure the ovens are turned off in the deli. There's a lot of closing activities. And I I frequently dream about forgetting something. I will forget to lock the door. I forget to turn off an oven. I'll forget to turn off a cash register. And then, you know, something bad happens as a result. The door's left open and people come in and ransack the place, or I leave the money accidentally in, in my cash register and somebody steals it. It's not surprising Anne dreams about people stealing stuff. She says not a day goes by that someone isn't caught shoplifting. Some of Anne's colleagues have turned it into a sport. They enjoy keeping an eye out for thieves. They enjoy catching people in the act. They take pleasure in alerting security guards to the presence of somebody who looks suspicious. The hunt doesn't sit right with Anne. Not with a hunger crisis and a housing crisis all around us. And it's not that 
I think that shoplifters should be allowed to shoplift, but those that work in my store have much more in common with shoplifters who are hungry than we do with the corporate owners that own our store and that want us to stop shoplifters. For Anne, the pandemic laid bare the American class system, she says, including the way the affluent shopper distances himself from the worker, the way the worker distances herself from the unhoused person or the shoplifter, and the system that perpetuates it all, making essential workers invisible. I think there's a class blindness that makes it nearly impossible for us to see the other person who's doing that work and to regard them as another human being like us. We don't want to know how hard that is, how much they're suffering, how low their their wages are. Anne is convinced if more of us had to trade places, the world would be better for it. What would it look like for that man in the business suit who comes in in his SUV and loads up with groceries or who orders them online and has somebody deliver them? What if he had to work in the grocery store in order for us to have a grocery store during the pandemic? You know, what if we actually had a system where, look, everybody needs to shop and we're not going to consign one class of people to that work. We're going to make sure it's more broadly shared. You know, I I just wonder what kinds of new policies, new changes would be possible if more people saw what this was really like. Anne says there are plenty of policies that would make life better for her and her colleagues. Higher wages, Medicare for all, student debt relief. But she realized at some point that even if all that came true, we would still be deeply divided by class. Even if we implemented those things, we would still have a society in which some people worked in a grocery store and some people didn't, even during a pandemic where grocery stores are essential to everyone. So what would it look like? What would actually be required to to give people the experience of working in a place like this so that we can make sure that If something is essential in society, something that we all need, we should all participate in producing it and making sure it functions. It shouldn't just be one group of people. Well, it's 10.22 p.m. and I'm walking home from work. The wind's picked up, a little bit of rain starting. I'm trying to get home before the clouds open up very tired. Can't wait to sit down, rest, take a shower. Tomorrow I have a day off, so I'm looking forward to that, having a whole 24 hours where I don't have to go anywhere, stay home, rest, read, do what I want, maybe watch a movie, relax. And then uh, the next day I'm working again for five straight days, so days off are great, but you always know the long week's coming. Ann Larson is a writer and grocery store worker. You can read more of her work at economichardship.org. Alyssa Quart edited Ann's essay about working in the store during the pandemic. Alyssa, what hooked you about Ann's piece in the first place? Well, Ann's had this combination of being an activist and an intellectual and somebody who was working a low-wage job during COVID that 
she could really reflect on while living in real time. And for me, that's like our raison d'etre for EHRP in the first place, that the voices of people who are excluded, who are working class, who grew up working poor, but have kind of an expertise about their experience and have innovation that they can offer around it at the same time. And that double possibility that you just don't, you don't have to just have experts who are from, you know, white collar elite technocrats, but instead you can have an expert who packs boxes and puts cans on shelves and yet can, you know, understand how to make that whole experience more bearable. Let's talk about that call for empathy at the end of her piece. Her stated desire to break through class blindness by, in effect, trading places. And my idealistic self wants to go there with her, but my more realistic self says, well, you know, how's that going to work? You know, I, I had this fantasy that when I, when I read that, first of all, I thought about trading places, that 1980s movie, I think, with Eddie Murphy and who was it again? Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd, uh, you know, where a, I think it was a homeless man exchanges places with a ridiculous rich toff. Given the right surroundings and encouragement, I'll bet that that man could run our company as well as your young Winthorpe. Are we talking about a wager, Randolph? And then My Mad Godfrey, which was a wonderful film from the 1930s, same deal. May I inquire just why you would want to show me to people at the Waldorf Ritz? Oh, if you must know it's a game, you've probably heard about it, a scavenger hunt. If I find a forgotten man first, I win. Is that clear? Yes, quite clear. Shall I wear my tails or come just as I am? You needn't be fresh. Do you want the $5 or don't you? It's a constant trope in cinema and TV even there's a there's a show called Undercover Boss where each episode is about an upper management person uh, at a big business going undercover ent- as an entry level person so I thought oh my god these are the genre versions but what she's proposing is a utopian and kind of very powerful version where you'd have instead of the the CEO going as a kind of surveyor to like see if the people were putting the packaged goods away properly and and handling the cash register properly, they'd be going to experience the difficulty that their uh, lowest paid employees were experiencing. But I wonder, and I thought this through and I tried to think about ways that this could work, if higher status workers could experience low wage, low status work for themselves, would they come away saying, boy, it would be a good thing if we could make the lives of those workers better. Or would they come away saying, boy, I'm glad there's a line between me and them because I don't want to work like that and I don't want to live like that. I mean, probably. I think there's a there's a problem of empathy. There's a problem of other minds. I think people people from certain class positions can't imagine the experience of other people. And then even when it's shown to them directly, they almost want to build the wall higher. I mean, during the pandemic, the average CEO pay was uh, rose to 12.7 million, you know, in 2021. And we're hearing from Ann Larson about being at risk and making, I, I think she makes 15, which is a, a dream for many employees to even make $15 an hour. 
So there's a vested interest in people at the top keeping their positions and having ironclad hierarchies and boundaries. As I was listening to Anne, I wondered what was the more important imperative, making life better for Anne and her co-workers by simply paying them more, or actually thinking about what would make their work lives a little less drudgery, a little less mind-numbing. I think, you know, I, I worked at a cash register behind a store counter and as a stock clerk for years. And really, what I was interested in more than anything was just making more money. I, I, being a stock clerk is what it is. Running a cash register is what it is. And rather than um, looking for ways to redesign that job to make it more en- enlivening, at that point in my life, I just wanted to make more money. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing also as an after effect of the pandemic and childcare demands and yeah, stimulus payments, unemployment insurance is that people are quitting or people are not going back to work when they have jobs like Anne's. Uh, if they feel, feel exploited or they feel like they're put in danger, that to me is a sign that people are going to do whatever it takes to get paid more. And, you know, and sanitizing shopping carts, working alongside people with COVID-19, she really does need to be paid more. And at, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was hazard pay. And now many of these companies have clawed that back. And that's, that's the beginning, though. And Larson raises a really interesting question. Even if people in the fight for 15 and the fight for better conditions got the things that they're asking for, better wages, uh, medical care, student debt relief, we'd still have a society, and certainly a workforce, with stark class divides, especially between essential and non-essential workers, which is something the pandemic really taught us. In effect, if you have the money, you can pay to insulate yourself from exposure to some of the dangers in society. Uh, the box goods delivered to the doorstep uh, by one of the, the big shipping companies so that you don't have to go to the store. Um, buying food in a way that um, you know means you never have to see that there was actually a pig before there was a pork chop. While... Uh, Meatpacking workers are dying of COVID-19. We were reminded of those workers for a brief moment. Did they change the conversation? Going forward, will we still remember them? I, I think that's right. And I think we need to start deconstructing the language, too, that's being used right now. Uh, it was used in the height of the pandemic. It's probably going to be used again because of the Delta strain curbside delivery is a person. And there's been a sort of depersonalization, right? Where it's like, oh yeah, it's it just appears at your curb. And otherwise progressive people are like, yeah, you know, I that's a wonderful store. I didn't even have to interact with anyone, which of course means that that Ann Larson and Co are in the store taking all the risk for for you, nice progressive shopper getting your health food. But, you know, one of the ways that I've been looking into this sort of transformation would be new models of ownership 
one of the ones that seems most appealing, both utopian and sort of practical, is the worker-owned co-op. And we're seeing more of them. There's something like 465 worker-owned co-ops now, up 36% since 2013. And what it means is that the employees both run the business and share its ownership. So it's a taxi driver who gets a share of the profits of the company while driving the taxi. It's the auto repair person who ditto. It's the food service worker who is also an owner. So when the company makes a profit, they get a share. They get to make their own hours. They get to decide how much they're paid per hour, what their medical benefits look like. And to me, that is uh, a potentially exciting, exciting change. And when I talked to somebody who is a specialist and they said that, that there's a tendency for these things to rise up when government is unable to meet the moment. And to me, that seemed very true. I mean, that was true during the pandemic. That was true in the t- certain other times during the, the 30s when there was a rise in worker co-ops during the 1880s uh, after the Civil War, when there was a rise, especially for Black people, uh, for worker co-ops. So I'm wondering, maybe that's the kind of fix that we need um, in a time of, you know, epic income inequality and uh, where we need more than a check when we just when we need a livelihood, like actually meaningful work where people's rights are being supported economically, but also existentially. I guess Jeff Bezos um, unintentionally reminded us of some of these structures when he basically acknowledged when he was back down on terra firma that the workers of Amazon paid for his space flight. And I can only imagine that many of them heard that and said, yeah, I sure did. Yeah, I mean, I love the, the, I mean, it's just too good, right, that they're colonizing space. You know, it's like the final frontier for inequality is going to be intergalactic. Um, And and, you know, I think Anne's story captures these truths, right? These gradations and the surrealism of them. I think that the surrealism that would lead to someone like Jeff Bezos being able to go in space flight and workers during the pandemic, you know, getting wild levels of exposure in tight quarters in in fulfillment centers, which are really unfulfillment centers often, right? Um, I think that that is is surreal and it calls for this kind of writing, the kind of, and it calls for the kind of dreams that Anne Larson has these kind of surreal dreams of a CFO in a sort of Harvard business school case study fashion, going to work as a, as a checkout person for months at a time. It's such a surreal topsy turvy world. Why not? Alyssa Quart is executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Alyssa, thanks a lot. Thank you, Ray. Going for Broke comes to you from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and The Nation. Our producer is Jeb Sharp, mixing and sound design by Tina Toby Mack. Our executive producers are Alyssa Quart and David Wallace. Frank Reynolds is multimedia editor at The Nation. The Nation's editor is D.D. Guttenplan. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for listening. Please tell your friends about us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit thenation.com slash podcasts to learn more. 
Sign up for EHRP's newsletter at economichardship.org.